All right. Well, welcome to week four of church. Do I have to go? I always read that in a whiny voice. Uh, Do I have to go? Um, Yes, as we found out in the last three weeks. So tonight we are looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, We are going to dive pretty deep into these. So if you've read through through the chapter already, you kind of know where we're headed. There's lots of scripture and... uh, so hopefully we're going to get some good, good discussion uh, tonight as well. But to start off, um, what are baptism and the Lord's Supper? I hope that's good English. What is baptism and the Lord's? What are baptism? They're two different things, right? So what are they? Here you go. Symbols. Symbols, okay. There's a specific word, and I think I call them sacraments. <laughs> okay. You're not wrong. Ordinances. Ordinances, there you go. Okay, so those are the two, those are kind of the two main things. Um, So they are ordinances. So an ordinance is something that makes up, um, there's something ordained or commanded by someone in authority, in this case, God. Um, I don't think there's any higher authority there. Uh, Some churches refer to these ordinances as sacraments. A sacrament is something sacred or set apart by God with special meaning. So... We typically use the word ordinance. Um, it's, it's preferable as it kind of avoids a confusion that uh, these elements could have any kind of saving power in and of themselves. So um, as Didi said, they, they can be symbols. And we're going to look into this as well as to what um, observing baptism and the Lord's Supper communicate to people around us, um, communicate to the church, and communicate to um, unbelievers as well. Um, and so... Um, We're going to jump right in here. So the gospel proclaims that we are saved through faith alone in Jesus alone. So who created the idea of ordinances? Jesus. That's a perfect Sunday school answer. It's very applicable. Uh, Jesus instituted baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, They're not merely religious rituals Christians dreamed up, but divinely designed symbols that serve both the church and the watching world. So who did Jesus give the ordinances to? Can, can, I, can I play devil's advocate? Yeah. <coughs> so y'all don't have to debate. So we said, you know, ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper. John the Baptist was baptizing before Jesus was baptized. Mm, I thought of that as well. So, and I, But I know he wasn't baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Right. He was still baptizing. So right. do we give the, the baptismal start to John the Baptist, or did he give it to Jesus? Wasn't that a common practice? So there was a common practice in Jewish, Jewish faith. They had Maybe something... Outside the Jewish faith. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Identification? I'm not sure. But, to be a, but Judaism didn't require people to be baptized. There was a... Before temple worship, there was something called a mikvah, or mikveh, um, which was a cistern. Basically, it was a, a, um, a bathtub. Yeah, it, it was it was a stone, you know, um, basin where they would have water in, and they would go, and it was a ritual ritual purification. Um, they would they would um, wash themselves, and that's um, partially where. I think we, we understand some of the history of, behind it. Um, 
but I thought that same thing. I was like, well, but my, my, my thought then is, okay, but if we're looking at specifically the baptism as we, we practice it today, then Jesus instituted that because um, that was the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit coming down on, on him um, at that time as well, um, which in that, in that passage in Mark, you see a physical representation of all three parts of the, of the Trinity um, visible at once, which I think is really cool. You have the spoken voice of God, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. You have the visible picture of the Holy Spirit descending from heaven, and then you have Jesus, all three together, um, taking part in this. Um, it's a good question, though. Um, I'm sure there is a lot of history behind the practice of uh, what we know as baptism, whether or not they called it that um, or not. But yes, you are correct, because John the Baptist did baptize Jesus. Um, but I think for the, um, as far as the example that we follow and the, the meaning that we draw from baptism and that we're supposed to draw from baptism, um, it, it was given to us as the church uh, by Jesus in, in that regard. Because that was pre-crucifixion, um, pre, pre resurrection. So we, the church identifies with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Correct. So yes. The other was just a spiritual like purification, not mm. a spiritual purification. Right. Practice. Right. <clears throat> so... Who did, who did Jesus give the ordinances to? The church, yeah. So he kind of gave his keys of authority to the church to speak and act on his behalf. So we see this in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Um, Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whether you bind, or whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then Matthew 18, 18 through 20, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind in earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So what does this mean practically for us uh, as the church? Um, it means that local churches can say with confidence that a person will be forgiven of their sin if they repent and believe in Jesus. So when someone comes to Christ, a church baptizes him um, uh, be, uh, because only the church has been given the authority to administer the ordinance of baptism as a sign to new believers. Similarly, only the church has been given the authority to administer the Lord's Supper to believers. As churches administer baptism in the Lord's Supper, they help draw loving lines that clarify who is in, the right, who is in right standing with Jesus and who is not. And so it sets as an example um, and, and helps folks realize uh, who's in, like I said, who's in right standing with Jesus and who's not. And we're going to break this down a little bit further as well. So what does it mean? Let's look at what it means to be set apart. Okay. So Matthew 10, 32 through 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is, um, in, in these, these um, sorry, 
losing my train of thought here. Um, so in, in this passage in Matthew, Jesus is saying that, you know, if you are, if you are for me, if you acknowledge me before men, if you publicly profess faith in me, um, I will acknowledge you before my Father. Um, but if you deny me before men, then I'm going to deny you um, before my Father as well. And so it's, it's kind of a, a warning to us as well as um, an encouragement to us to, um, once we profess faith in Jesus, to stay the course and to remain faithful. Um, but it's also a warning that if we deny Jesus, then he will deny us. So... Um, God has, throughout, throughout the history of, of the, the Scripture, God has given physical signs as reminders of His promises to us. So we look at, uh, God gave Noah the sign of the rainbow, Abraham the sign of circumcision, Moses the sign of the Sabbath, and David the sign of a throne. As you were going through these, did you, did you think of any other signs or symbols that, that may, have, may have appeared that weren't listed here? These are some of the, the major ones. I don't know if anybody had another one that stuck out. Another sign. So God gives physical signs as reminders of His promises. So, well, even in the garden, God killed the lamb, which was a sign of Jesus to come, the Lamb of God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. think of Gideon too when he puts the fleece out at night mm-hmm. you know um, God just giving him that that reminder um, so a lot of these things are, are and especially these four examples are things of the old covenant um, that God had between um, his people old covenants that he had made um, but Jesus as we know instituted the new covenant which is what kind of drives the the reason behind why we practice baptism in the Lord's Supper um, so Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's previous covenants. Um, and we see in Hebrews 10, this is going to be a few verses here. Um, but it says, um, Hebrews 10, verse 1 through 18, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, Consequently, uh, sorry, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came to the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasures in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after, uh, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So, looking at at, this, let me just ask, what does God promise in the new covenant? So, Jesus is making a new covenant with us. What, what What does he promise in that? Not just forgiveness, but removing our sin. Once and for all, right? His sacrifice is sufficient for all time, for, for all eternity, for every person. Um, there's, for those who have faith in Jesus, there is no need to continually return to the law to offer continual sacrifices yearly for, um, because those are insufficient in and of themselves, but Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So we see this um, in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So as the chapter continues here, we we continue to break down the new covenant. And it says, Under the new covenant, our, our hearts are circumcised by God's Spirit. So we see Romans 2:29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and, a circ- and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit nor by the letter. His, pray, uh, his praise is not from man, but from God. We also see Colossians 2:10 through 12. And you have been filled in, in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You see a draw to baptism there. James is teaching the class as well. Keep, keep on. Appreciate the feedback. Yes, yeah, right. His law is written on our hearts. We saw that in the passage in Jeremiah, right? And he says, Hebrews 10, 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So um, his word, his law, uh, is, is written on our hearts and it's, it's put on, on our minds. Uh, additionally, in the new covenant, we see that our sins are washed away and that our spiritually dead hearts are replaced with hearts that love God. So Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from, you, uh, from all your idols, that's what the Bible says, uncleannesses, <laughs> cleannesses, yes, 
and from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So we see this new covenant. We see that there's a, a transformation that takes place. And we see sufficient evidence here that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of that promise. So as we switch over here and look, into, look at baptism, um, there are things that, that baptism brings out um, that, that brings to mind as we as we observe it, as we participate in it, as we, um, as we practice it. Um, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that's uh, written on our wall. Uh, and Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So baptism simply stated is going public with your faith. Um, it is a, a public profession or demonstration or um, you know, display of your faith in Jesus Christ to the gathered body. Um, and it is a, a wonderful time to, to celebrate, but it's also a, uh, a physical representation of us seeing the Great Commission filled, fulfilled within the church and within the kingdom, um, and that, that disciples are baptized. Um, we also see that through faith we are united with Christ. So Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so we see that as, as we go through baptism, right? We, it's this, this representation or this symbol, symbolic act of putting on Christ. Um, that's, that we have, we have decided that you know, we are going to put off our old self and put on Christ. And that that is going to be um, who we place our identity in, who we place our faith in, and who we place um, our assurance for salvation in. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. You are now a pickle. Um, not all religions baptized. That's true. I'm Quaker, and my religion does not baptize. Okay. I proclaim my faith in front of the congregation by agreeing to become an active member of my church. Okay. Okay. It's a good insight. Um. The transformation of a spiritually dead sinner to a living child of God is something else that we see when uh, you, you see baptism taking place. So Romans 6, 4 through 5. Uh, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we, if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this, or like his, sorry. Uh, also in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So again, it's, it's, it's this idea of um, you're coming into the fold, right? You're, you're, um, we're seeing this, this spiritual transformation take place in, in, a, in a believer's life. Um, they're, they're declaring their faith and allegiance and... and um, um, faith in Jesus, and uh, you know the church is also agreeing with them that you know 
while you're 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 professing that you're going to grow and learn and mature in the faith, we're asking that you help us do that too, um, as as believers, because we're all one body and we're all in this together. To take a drastically overused quote from COVID times, we're all in this together. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't see you in it with me right now. Um, so the specifics. So let's, let's look at some specifics of baptism. Where should I get baptized? Is there a, there a specific place you should get baptized? In water. In water. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah? In the presence of the church. In the presence of the church, yes. Okay. So what we established very very first week of this class, the church is... The people, right? So as long as you can be baptized in the presence of the gathered body of believers, that is the appropriate place to be baptized, whether or not it is a stainless steel trough that they wheel out on stage, a formal baptistry with curtains and all that, or a pool or a river. Yes. Uh, Okay. Uh Uh-oh. Because you're professing through an act of symbolism that you're right. professing your faith. Right. But I mean, if if I'm out somewhere and I'm talking to a pastor, if a pastor and I'm talking somewhere with a third person, mm-hmm. that person says, "Well, I want to be baptized," and they profess faith, and there's body of water there, baptize them right there. Right. Two or more again. That's but, right. But that We're two or more. The church. Yeah. You were part of the body of Christ, you and your pastor. Yes. That's six feet still Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just one. Even just one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're you're because still. It would be two. <laughs> but and so in that specific case, if you're looking at it as somebody as a you know a pastor, an apostle, or an agent of the church that has been given authority, you know, to to baptize, then you are by extension of the church, baptizing him now. It would be great if the church could be gathered, um, but I don't think that there's there's not a prescriptive text that says the church has to be there. Um, so you just said something else. Just for another question. Okay, let's let's go get. No, it does not. You're getting ahead of me here. <laughs> That's right. Come on now. It's a great segue into the next question. No, um, but I know I, I'm speaking on our context. Um, so. Right. 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 Well, then let me throw one back at you. Then, does baptism save you? All right. That's right. So, if you're not baptized, are you a Christian? Okay. If, eventually. <laughs> oh yeah. If you're. That's true. This is true. This is true. There are some people that have been baptized that aren't Christians, which is why sometimes you see rebaptisms. Um, that's right. Baptism 2.0. Did John the Baptist say, "I baptize with water, but someone coming after me 
Yes, yes, yes. So good questions. So y'all put me in the hot seat tonight. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's great. It's, Steve's going to be asking a lot of questions over there. So who should baptize me? Let's say you know. Let's say I'm a new 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 convert, new believer. I want to be baptized. Who should baptize me? Okay. Okay. So we'll give a little little context here. Some churches will would allow anyone to perform a baptism citing the priesthood of all believers. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 9. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's, there's one aspect of it. So some churches would say anybody can baptize someone um, because we're all, we're all part of this royal priesthood. Okay, another, another take. Um, this is, we're getting in like second tier issues here, right? For those of you getting through Connect class, second tier doctrines. Others prefer pastors or elders to act as representatives of the whole church. Um, but it needs to be done in accordance with the true gospel. So baptism, whoever is doing it, it needs to be done in accordance with the gospel. Um, so let me stop there and ask, are there any devil's advocate questions there? Um, well, I know we don't necessarily have this position in our church, right? Well, I guess we kind of do. But like, what are the limitations of the idea of the priesthood of all believers? Like, does that just mean, that, oh, I can just go start my own church? Like, I don't have to follow qualification for elders. Like, it seems like a slippery slope. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I, I think here at this church, and Steve, you can correct me if I'm misstate this, but um, the elders, we see ourselves as much like we guard the table um, at the Lord's Supper, which we'll get into. We also guard the pool, um, and that is... Um, you know, it's something that we we see before the church. We see that baptism is a um, kind of a, a sacred time where we, you know, we witness somebody professing faith in Jesus. And so, um, if a father wanted to baptize their their child that they had led led them to faith, you know, and the father was a professing believer in Jesus, um, you know. Maybe with the elder present there in the in the pool, we would we would say yes, you can baptize your child, um, and we celebrate that with you. Um, uh, you know that that kind of thing. Um, typically, just because of logistics and the way it works, um, one of our elders will 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 baptize someone here. Um, but it's typically just because one of the questions that we ask is, who would you like to baptize you? And it's usually you, Pastor Ryan or Pastor Jay. You know, and it's just. You know, um, that's because that's typically who's having that conversation with that person, um, and so um, that 
that typically tends to be how it is, um, but it's certainly not, uh, I don't think, restricted only to one of the three, um, you know, vocational elders or one of the um, one of the lay elders. Because I know, I mean, Steve, you've baptized your daughter. Yeah, but I was an elder. But you were an elder, yes, I know. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not strictly like it doesn't have to be one of the three vocational elders. It could be. Um, Okay. Because he was in seminary or mm-hmm. whatever, so when Ashton was baptized, it was a church we attended, but he yeah. was able to baptize her, and then, and then chapel, and later, yeah, so, and then Tyler, once again, was at a church, mm-hmm. so we were just attenders, but. Yeah. Okay. So, point, point being is, it, it differs by church, um, how they practice it, if, if some are, have strict rules, if others are more. Um, you know, laid back in their in their rules. It differs by church. Uh, how who who can do who can perform a baptism? Um, so, is there a right way to be baptized? This can open a lot of a lot of different cans. What's that? Right. Must be a dunking. Um, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we do see two, uh, a couple of scriptural references here. So Mark 1.10, And when he came up out of the water, saying that he was down in the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then Acts 8.38, And he commanded the chariot to stop. This is your example, Steve. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Um, so we see this example that there is, you know, from one, the meaning of it, and also, um, you know, the, by practice that we see in the Bible, it is an immersion. Um, so there are churches that will do sprinklings or pouring of water, um, things like that, and that, you know, again, we're getting second tier, second tier doctrine here. Here, it's interesting to see the scripture of where they get it from. Yes, yes. But for me, though, that just okay, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you know, then as a symbolic uh, acknowledgement of relationship with Christ right. after salvation, right? After, you know. Right. But to me, that's that just that's the way I read that. Is that it's almost as if they're saying, you know, this is how you receive the Holy Spirit, or mm-hmm. how you receive the Holy Spirit, right? Or how you know you're you've been saved by the blood of Christ, mm-hmm. so, and. As I was reading through that too, I, I, I thought, well, maybe to me it seems like they're almost focusing on the wrong symbolism, not, not in the fact that we look at it as you're 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 buried in sin, you're buried in death, in in accordance with you know as Jesus was buried, and then you're raised to life, you know, newness of life as as Christ was raised to life, and so it's that representation that that we we look at it, you know, is you know. Buried in baptism, raised again in newness of life, and that's that's pretty so much verbatim what. Right. Right. I'm identifying that the salvation is that act of salvation has already happened. It's not. Right. That's not contingent on that. Uh, on that act. 
Right. You're not being saved because you are being baptized. You have already been saved and you are professing faith. You know, you've already received the Holy Spirit as well. Right. So you don't need that pouring out either. Right. So, so yeah, just some good thoughts. It's kind of, I was like, oh, huh, okay, that's interesting. Um, but I think, I think our, our kind of our tri- tried and true um, is, is immersion. I mean, we're Baptists. So you got to, you know, bounce them off the bottom of the pool. <laughs> that's, yeah. right, but that's, that's how Jesus was baptized. Yeah, right. Example, that's that's so we should do. Right. Right. That's right. So um, we've, we've covered this, but does baptism save you from your sins? No. First uh, Peter three eighteen through twenty one. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they were form- they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited on the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's that idea of, that, that, again, that public profession. Um, should infants be baptized? There's a lot of heads shaking. It's, well, <laughs> yeah. so some churches do that as a way of dedication. Okay. Some churches do it as a, you're a Christian, and no. Right, because your parents are Christians. Exactly. Yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, bapt- like, it, if it was done as, as part of a, a dedication, I would question then, is it actually baptism? Yeah. Like, you know, so that's, you know, that you, sh- you shouldn't use that term you know, if it's, a, if it's a dedication kind of thing. But um, Matthew 28, 19, com- Jesus commands the church to baptize disciples. So a baby is not capable of being a disciple. Um, as cute as they are, they're not, they're not capable of being disciples because they're not able to profess faith in Jesus. Um, so... Baptism is for those who have been circumcised in heart. So Colossians 2, 10 through 12, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Um, We also have to know that the person has repented and believed in Jesus. Um, and so Acts 2.38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I wonder what would happen if somebody walked into like a, a park these days and was like, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. <laughs> I would love to see that. Um, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, can we ask people to come witness our baptism? That aren't necessarily a, a yeah you can go back there we go here we go all right so, so the very last sentence of this section i think they worded it very poorly it says once a child is baptized there is no need for a second baptism should he or she come to faith in christ i believe they're referring to that's what the presbyterian churches yes believe. 
but it's not very clear. I mean, I stopped and read that sentence like three or four times. Wait, wait. Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay, uh, 77. 77, where it says, can I ask people to come and see my baptism? The sentence right before that. Yeah, yeah, because he, he starts it off by saying Baptist churches believe that they should not be given the sign of the new covenant. If you were baptized as an infant, we would encourage you to be baptized as a believer. This would not be a rebaptism, but a true baptism. Whereas Presbyterian churches, on the other hand, practice infant baptism as they believe that the new covenant promise extends to children of Christian parents and that the sign is rightfully applied to them. Once a child is baptized, therefore, there is no need for a second baptism should he or she come to faith in Christ. Needed another little phrase. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. So, you had a devil's advocate question. Yeah. So. Okay. I, you know, I I think the Presbyterians do a lot of things right, uh, and this is obviously somewhere I differ. But having read the literature, like the the case is compelling, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of smart people differ on these kind of things, right? Right. And so... Second tier. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the case, right, is like that in the Old Covenant, the Israelites, right, which we knew was a mixture of elect and non-elect, right, they were all commanded as a covenant community to baptize, or not baptize, excuse me, circumcise their kids. Mm-hmm. And so depending... Again, this is where the differences come in, right? the amount of continuity between the Old and the New Covenants. If you say, it, like, well, baptism is the sign of the New Covenant, I think both sides agree on that. But to say, there's, well, there's no explicit command in the New Testament to stop giving the covenant sign to your children. So I think that is a argument that I understand and I think is logical. I do not think it is compelling and that I agree with it. But I think it is... Pretty, pretty good. Okay, as far as to why why to baptize why <clears throat> some churches baptize infants. Sure. Yep. I mean, my baby ain't baptized, right? But right. <laughs> when you got one, it makes you think about it. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> so. But yeah. But again, it doesn't, it's not really, like you said, second tier. Right. So it's not a question of your salvation. I think of somebody, if a child was baptized in the Presbyterian church and they grew up, and at some point they become Baptist, you know, and mm-hmm. they, um, that would be a decision. But it's not going to, either way, if they, are, if they are a Christian, then they are a Christian. That's not going to make or break their salvation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we know that the the act of baptism is not salvific in its right. practice. In it, it, there's nothing mystical about the water that you're dunked in that saves you or extends salvation to you. And incidentally, um, I have relatives who are Presbyterian, and they did not. They chose not to baptize their children. Okay. Because they didn't see it as a as necessary. Mm-hmm. They felt like that would be a decision their children would make when they grew up. Okay. Awesome. Very good. Any other thoughts or questions on baptism?
it's kind of fun talking about a subject that we all affirm, we all agree on, but looking at different viewpoints as to why different churches do it differently, um, I think it's, it's fun because uh, then it, it kind of calls into question, well, why do I believe what I believe? You know, let, let me find, you know, the, the right passage of Scripture that, that kind of affirms that. Yes, yes. So um, that being said, we still have the Lord's Supper to go through with quite a bit of Scripture as well. So um, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, as we see in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. So the Lord's Supper has ties to Passover, right? It, it was something that Jesus instituted during Passover. So there's your first tie. Um, and then, um, and we see that is in Luke 22, 14 through 23. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me, uh, is, it betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes that it has been determined, but woe to that man whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be that was going to do this. Um, we also see another tie here. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That was in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. Um, Luke, 19, uh, Luke 22, 19 through 20, and Luke 22, 18, we, we've already read. Um, but there's a couple things here. So 19 through 20, and he took the bread when you given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We, we hear this every time we do uh, communion, participate in the Lord's Supper, um, as it's kind of a... a a prescriptive text, right? So it tells us how to do it. But in, in reading this, um, before we partake in the elements of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering what Christ was telling His disciples that night. Um, and then um, we're going to, for the sake of time, we'll skip Isaiah 25. But um, I encourage you to go read it. It uh, talks about, um, you know, death, where is your sting? And um, so it's a... Um, a good passage. Um, the Lord's Supper represents our relationship with Christ, right? So in Matthew 26, uh, 26 through 29, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of, all, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Um, so we see that, again, we see that um, the, the mention of a new covenant here. So this is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Um, and so we remember that. So as we take of the cup, eat of the bread, we remember the covenant that Jesus has made with us. Um,
So communion, as it is also referred to, um, we see uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it's, again, this, this um, reminder that we are taking part as the body of Christ. We are taking part in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus um, for all that He had done. Um, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 22 But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. That's a, that's a I guess, a, a, an encouragement and a warning to us that we need to empty ourselves of any, any sin that we're harboring, any, anything that would, would, would take us away from being fully devoted, fully, fully focused on remembering who Jesus is as we partake in the Lord's Supper. Um, because in doing so, as we're going to see here, in, in, if we're coming to the table and we have unrepentant sin, if we're coming to the table and we're, um, we're just doing it out of practice and not out of actual you know, remembrance and with, with reverence, we're, we're not participating in it in the way and in the spirit in which Christ had intended us to. And we are to remember His body that was broken, His blood that was shed, and to remember what that means um, as, as we partake in communion. So we see that it is a welcome and a warning. Um, Jesus was a friend of sinners. We see that in Matthew 11, um, 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So we, we recognize that we are all sinners, right? Um, but we need to make sure that we're not in open rebellion before we come to... Um, come to the table. Romans 15, 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Um, so everyone is welcome at the table provided that they are professing believers in Jesus and that um, they, have, they have examined themselves um, prior to, to coming to um, the table. So the church stands as guardians of the Lord's table. Um, let me pop over to 1 Corinthians 11 here. Which says, starting in verse 18, uh, For in the first place when you came together as a church... Oh, I just read that. Sorry. They refer to these a few times, but... Um, so, yeah. Um, it, it does stand as a, as a, as a warning. So... Again, it's this idea that we're not supposed to be coming to the table with baggage, um, you know, that we haven't dealt with, that we haven't 
confessed before the Lord that we haven't taken note of. Um, you know, and even times, you know, we might, we might be encouraged to ask the Lord to examine us, point out any areas of sin in our lives that may not be known to us, ask the Holy Spirit to, to shine light in those areas um, so that we can confess them. We can um, confess them to the Lord and, and, and acknowledge that um, before coming to the table. So there's four reasons to abstain from partaking in the Lord's Supper. Um, so Matthew 12:30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So um, if you're not converted, so that means an unbeliever um, should not participate in the Lord's Supper because that's kind of a, um, a blasphemous um, expression or a blasphemous um, partaking of the, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the unrepentant, so this is a person that's um, in open, un, unrepentant sin um, that is, you know, again, not properly coming to the table. The uncommitted, so someone who's just going through the motions. Um, and the unauthorized, um, so this would be a, a person that's been, um, that is undergoing church discipline uh, and has been asked to not participate in the table, um, the Lord's table. Um, because of their, you know, and this, like we talked about last week with church discipline, it was last week, um, with, with church discipline, um, you know, there may be um, people who are undergoing church discipline that are in open rebellion, that are, that are not doing anything to repent or turn away from their sin, and they're just, you know, they're kind of progressing through the stages of church discipline. So a church may ask them at that point, you know, you're, you're not welcome at the table um, due to your reluctance to to um, repent so um, how often should we take the Lord's Supper Okay. Okay. Fourth Sunday. Okay. Is there a reason for that, or is it like specifically, or is it just part of the it's just part of part of their liturgy? Okay. Every fourth Sunday, the congregation has lunch. Okay. Okay. It is. It is. It's a it's a unifying act in one one regard. Um, yeah. So. Okay. I want to say it was a while ago. It was back in the spring. Okay. Then it was a while ago. It was. It was before February of this year because yeah. I was self-quarantined because my daughter was pregnant. Mm. So. Well, November 6th, put it on your calendars. We're doing communion during the service. <laughs> November 6th. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's been a while. Does the Bible tell us how often 
1 Corinthians 11.26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, so often, it doesn't, it doesn't prescribe, you know, how many times, how often. Um, even when we see the, the, um, the Acts 2 church, which we went through the first week, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they were doing communion regularly and often. So, what's that? We've sitting here talking that that scripture verse, for as often as you eat, mm-hmm. it's, it's not talking about time or day. It's, right. It's referencing, well, when you do this, mm-hmm. right. you are remembering me, not every time you do this. Right. Um, it's not the time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the proclaiming. Right. So it's the, it's the, the purpose, you yeah. know, as often as you do this, yeah. whenever you do this. Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. are you doing this? Yeah. Not do it often. Right. Well, and I'm trying to think, if Jesus did it during a specific festival, so that festival was only once a year, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But that was that was yeah, that was that one inaugural. Yeah. How many other festivals? How many other? Was it part of other festivals? We don't know. Well, yeah. What? This book actually says though, though there's freedom. Churches who take it less than once a month should consider why they've chosen to do it so infrequently when it seemed to have been a regular part of the early church's life. Hmm. And then it, it references Acts 2, 42 through 47. It does. So, so yeah. Should we be doing it once a month? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I, and again, I don't know that there's a, there's a prescriptive text that tells you how often to do it, you know? We all need to go find Ryan and say, hey. <laughs> this book says. This book says. Right. I don't think the point is like it should be once, I don't think the saying it should be once a month, but I think the, the thinking, at least the way I think about it, right, because personally, I wish we did it more often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think not only does the church, it's just the church is the guardian as the Lord's table, and I, I affirm that, but I also say like the church is the the host of the Lord's table. Right. Sense, right. I don't think it's biblical to like go home and do communion with me and myself, right. and, like my my wife. Right. Like, right. I think it, the first Corinthians, first Corinthians eleven talks about yeah. as a corporate gathering, and so um, I think it we have to also consider that it is meant to be a blessing, right? Like Jesus gave this to us, not just like some rule to follow for no reason, but like right. because it's it's called communion because like. Communion with God, like, and right. it's supposed to be Solomon remember mm-hmm. the calls for remembrance. And so I think it's also one of those things where it's like, well, if we did it more often, like, and again, like, I think the danger of doing like what we do in our church is that there's probably people that haven't taken communion in perhaps years if you didn't come to members' meetings. Right. Again, I think you ought to come to members' meetings, but like, right. a fact of the matter is most people don't. Yeah. Um, and so again, I think you have to consider like, okay, well, like. There are members of our church that are missing out on that blessing. And maybe you say, again, they voluntarily withhold themselves from it. But mm-hmm. something, I think, uh, again, is a reason that can merit being rock. Right, yeah. But I believe there's some significance to when we do it. So like when it's chosen. And, you know, we talk about not doing it alone. But during COVID, when there was times that I would be uh, self-quarantining or whatever, 
I actually went on Amazon and bought those little cups mm -hmm. with a little wafer, mm -hmm. and I have them in my house because mm -hmm. if I get quarantined and we're doing it, I'm going to participate mm -hmm. with the church at home. Right. I am watching the service live yeah. on mm -hmm. television, and I'm participating with yeah. the body. Yeah. And I feel like that's okay. Well, you're 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 participating in it in in that with the body, with the body. just right. not physically present with the body, but you're 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 still, you know. So there's there's you also look at it as there's got to be a healthy balance of how often mm -hmm. because just like Jay is saying, if somebody doesn't come to the members meeting and we don't do it enough during our regular service, they're missing out. Mm -hmm. But then if it becomes so often, then it, what, does, does it become a, a special time to reflect and, and be a part of, of the body, or does it become routine? Right. And now it's, well, here we are taking the Lord's Supper again. Right. But then again, would you say Sunday school was routine for you being here? <coughs> you know, I grew up having communion um, once a month. Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah and yeah that's where that's where we get into the the weeds a little bit is is it's not a there's not a you know there's not a prescribed frequency right hey, well, and then so. it talks about the ordinance so mm -hmm. you know you think about Sunday school isn't necessarily an ordinance right uh, you know so I think it has to be significant and that it doesn't become just a ritual Right. Is it is it Catholicism that they go and they get the, the priest gives them the wafer and then they drink out of the same cup? Is that everything? Yep, I think so. In their mass, part of their mass. It's the uh, what do you call those? The I don't know. They would tincture. Or but there's a no wrong word. What do they call that cup? Is it a chalice. Chalice. Yeah. I actually went to a church once. Visited a church. It was a wasn't a Catholic church, but. Um, they, they were drinking and they lined up. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to, and I didn't. <laughs> they lined up, and the pastor gave everyone the, you know, out the same cup. Of so, we, um, what we did when Rob was doing the chapel up in Connecticut, um, every week we would go get bread so it wasn't unleavened. But, anyways, we would get a little loaf of bread, and they, the, everybody would line up, go, and they would take a piece off and then dip it in. Mm -hmm. So we've done that at a couple yeah. different churches um, that we've been a part of. Dip it in the in the cup. Grape juice. Actually, um, I think one of the churches we went to, not Provost, one of the churches we went to, I think they had wine and grape juice so you could mm. choose which one you wanted. Um, it's like express communion because you're you're doing both at the same time. It's, there you go. Yeah. There was something else in my brain, but it's gone. Does say as often as you drink the cup. Uh, that's right. That's right. We're just forfeiting our break tonight. That's okay. Church, um, whatever wine they don't use, they have to dispose of it properly. They do. It has to, oh, yeah. They'll whack you 
Yeah. Right. Transubstantiation. Yeah. What the elements actually yes. are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What are we gonna do with this body of Jesus that we can use? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, being part of a chapel, you've got the Catholic service and the Protestant service, and so you know we're just. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. learned things. <laughs> I think that's right. Transubstantiation. I think yes. is when yeah. it changes from. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because they believe that actually is the. Turns body into the body. body. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. You can ask her now. All right, so with our, our last little bit of time here, um, we're going to jump into uh, some our, our discussions, um, questions. Um, so again, we're, we're putting on our, our apologetics lens here. So we're now having this conversation with Brian or with Joe, the, the unbeliever, um, and... You know, he said, well, first you wanted me to believe in the gospel and accept Jesus, because that's, that's usually the first thing that we want somebody to do, right? Believe in the gospel and, and you know, um, come to church, believe in the gospel and accept Jesus. Now you want me to get up in front of everyone and be baptized? How would you, why? How would you, how would you answer that question? Well, as a Christian, now fundamentally you're... Your, your fundamental confession as a Christian is that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And the Savior part we like, but like the Lord part is a little less. But this is the first opportunity you have to exercise obedience. There you go. Yeah. And as a believer and follower of Christ, then you're, you're identifying that you, you believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, and this is how you identify with this other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other insights as to how you would answer that how you would argue for the the necess the, the need to be baptized so what? becoming a christian is supposed to be an exciting time mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity for people to celebrate with you okay yeah it's the this whole idea of like great you're saved you gotta tell somebody like this is great go tell somebody um you know we see that time and time again we, you see you know, Jesus performed a miracle, and, you know, or, you know they, they, we got to go tell somebody. And sometimes Jesus is like, eh, don't tell anybody. Um, and then they go tell everybody anyway. Um, but there's, you know, there's this, this change that should happen in your life that should drive this, this, you know, this conversion that's happened that should drive this excitement that you want to go tell people. So tell the church. Let them be excited for you. Be excited with you. Mm-hmm. And so he definitely ran the risk of that also, but he was baptized and he splashed the choir. There you go. There you go. That was that was sprinkling and baptism all in one service. There you go. Um, why do you participate in the Lord's Supper? And if I'm a guest at your church that doesn't believe in Jesus, why do you exclude me? What am I supposed to do while you all participate in this? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote the. Um, there was an illustration in here that I, I wrote a note that said, wow. Um, and it was. Oh, where is it? The girl that um, 
the lady named Addie, um, she, you know, the pastor explained who should share in the meal before and who should not. And she, she later said, shared that it was that night when the elements passed by her that she understood the gospel that she had heard from both from her friend and during the service. She saw visibly that her fellowship with God was broken and that she was on the outside of his people. It was then and there that she knew she wanted Jesus to bring her into his church. Um, that was an awesome illustration because it's a great example of, of why. Um, that's kind of an aside that doesn't you know, contribute to the arguments phase of this. But how would, you, how would you argue back or persuade this person um, or convince them of the importance of it? I think the argument about excluding them, where it talks about how coming to the table um, in not the right way is similarly to taking the Lord's name in vain. Mm -hmm. And like as a church, we're not wanting to lead you to sin, we're wanting to lead you from it. Right. That's good. Mm -hmm. In the same way, um, when we would um, take the Lord's (coughs) supper, We would have to tell our children you're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. We would have to pass it by them, and we would explain to them every time you're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper now until you trust in the Lord as your own personal Savior. Mm -hmm. And it was hard each time until each one of them accepted Christ as Mm -hmm. their personal Savior. And both of them did at the age of five, but until they did as their own personal savior mm-hmm. taking the Lord's Supper was a hard time because they sat in church with us but they were not allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper until they you know, mm-hmm. accepted the Lord as their savior. Yeah. A pastor that told the story once that as their kids grew up and they you know, got to a certain age or whenever they knew and they were professing Christ as their savior they would ask what does it mean to you to be doing this and they all had their different and then it's, I guess, the youngest one, maybe, uh, he asked that question, something like, means I get to drink grape juice and eat the cracker <laughs> on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, Got to so, mean a little more than that. Yeah. <laughs> this is what we call a teachable moment. Um, so why is it important for the church to observe these two ordinances? What does it represent? Why is it so important for you guys to, to gather together and celebrate baptism and gather together and participate in communion? Obedience. Okay. Worship. Worship. Okay. Well, both of them point back to what we were saved from, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? I said redemption, sanctification, I said justification, church words. <laughs> church words. That's right. Jesus. That's right. Jesus. That's right. Justification. Because Jesus gave baptism and the Lord's Supper to his church as ordinances. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But it also goes back to, you know, do this in remembrance of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he 
if you're not a believer, you know, you, you, you don't have that, you don't have that um, foundational understanding of, of what Jesus did, right? It, it doesn't impact you um, as, as it would a believer to, to remember that. There's something you said for there, there are physical things that we do that are, that are reminders, like you know, Gnosticism is this belief, right, where it's like the spiritual is good, but the physical and the body is bad. Christian Christianity is not that, right? Because God made our whole body, right, and our mm-hmm. bodies aren't just things we turn our brains around in, right? right. So like sometimes phys- like these physical actions we need to do regularly because we forget, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so. Again, like a worship service incorporates it's, it's something for everybody. the whole body, right? Right. The whole the whole body is a Christian, right? Not just the mind. Right. That's right. Any other thoughts on baptism or the Lord's Supper? Everybody's quiet. I know. I know. I'm I'm trying to think too. That's right. It's not a loaded question. It's just asking for input. Yeah. Well, good. Um, So I thought it was kind of a fun study to go go through and just kind of be reminded why baptism and you know, the Lord's Supper are important. Be reminded of, of why the church has these ordinances, where they came from, what they were designed to do. And, um, you know, each of them in their, own, um, in their own way has an evangelistic element of it as well. Uh, as you're witnessing somebody professing faith in Jesus, you know, you're seeing that, okay, you know, this person is, is now saying that, you know, they're putting their faith in Jesus, that they're, they're you know, they have this um, conversion that's taking place in their life, you know, and, and me as a sinner, I, I could be that person. Like, I could, I could do that too. Like, I could, you know, I want to find out more about who Jesus is and why this person made all their changes, you know, or is, is, is you know, trying to, trying to change, trying to, you know, why they're becoming a follower of Jesus. Um, and then communion as well, as we describe it, you know, and we hear the words of Christ being spoken to his disciples, and then we hear those words again as we partake in communion, and this do in remembrance of me, or, you know, take this cup and um, eat this bread in remembrance of me. You know, as an unbeliever, you might think, what are we supposed to be remembering? You know, maybe that drives some questions. Maybe that spurs some questions in your mind, you know, gets the gets the hamster wheel running a little bit to try and figure out, you know, well, why is it that, that this group of people does this and what are they remembering? Um, you know, and it serves as an evangelistic tool because as, as, you could, as, you, as a, a guest or an unbeliever, you know, you may be sitting next to a, a believer, you know, somebody who's participating in communion and you, you sit there and go, well, why did you do that? Like, what, what, what's different about you? You know, and it's a good opportunity to open some conversations um, into why uh, we do what we do. So, not just rituals, not just practices that we go through that are that are rote. It's 
um, very specific, very intentional, um, very reverent things uh, that we that we practice. So, awesome. Somebody like to close us tonight in prayer? Yeah. Okay.